I am Casey Hunt, and this is CNN Tonight. There is so much news on the multiple ongoing investigations into Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. We are going to spend the whole hour unpacking it all this evening. We have not one, but two former Trump White House insiders who are going to help us do it tonight. In a moment, you'll hear from former Trump acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney. His message for some of his fellow Republicans, pay attention to the January 6th hearings. And there are big developments tonight on that front. You'll also hear from former Trump White House press secretary, Stephanie Grisham. She, like Mulvaney, resigned from her administration repost on the day that our Capitol came under attack. Stay tuned for both of them. The select committee, meanwhile, apparently just finalized plans for what could be its most critical testimony yet. Our sources say the committee struck a deal for a closed-door recorded interview with former White House counsel Pat Cipollone, set to happen on Friday. He met with members in April for an informal interview. But since his name came up numerous times during last week's explosive testimony from former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson, the committee subpoenaed him for formal testimony under oath. White House counsel Pat Cipollone. Mr. Cipollone. Mr. Cipollone. Mr. Cipollone. I see Pat Cipollone barreling down the hallway towards our office. Pat Cipollone said, yeah, this is a murder-suicide pact. I called Pat Cipollone. White House counsel Pat Cipollone. Mr. Trump's former White House counsel, Pat Cipollone. There you go. There will, of course, be limitations. Those are due likely to executive and attorney-client privilege, but it's still a very big deal. This is someone who spent a significant amount of time with the ex-president while he was in office, before, during, and after January 6th. He is a witness who can potentially help fill in lots of critical blanks. Remember, Hutchinson testified that Cipollone expressed very serious concerns about the legality of some of Donald Trump's actions. Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. So will we see some of Cipollone's upcoming testimony at the committee's seventh public hearing that is set for Tuesday? TBD. But meanwhile, another former close Trump aide has gone from doggedly defending the ex-president in his White House days to now defending what we've been hearing in those House committee hearings investigating Trump's actions on January 6th. Why? I put that and more to former Trump acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney. Sir, thanks so much for being here. Casey, thanks as always for having me. So you previously predicted that the committee was going to work on getting Pat Cipollone's testimony and that ultimately he was going to show up. And now that is happening. But what do you think he's going to offer to the committee? Um, the truth. Uh, I, I know Pat. I worked very closely with Pat for 15 months, actually more than that, uh, when I was in the White House in the West Wing. Um, and Pat will tell the truth. There is no question about it. Uh, will he corroborate what Casey Hutchinson had said? Uh, will he counter what she said? I don't know. Uh, but I do know that Pat Cipollone is an honorable guy. And if he, once he puts his hand on that Bible, he will be telling the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help him God. You clashed a little bit with Pat Cipollone when you were working in the White House alongside him. You guys did uh, overlap. Uh, what's changed, if anything, uh, that gives you a, a higher estimation of Mr. Cipollone now? 
Oh, no, nothing, because that hasn't changed. I always held Pat at high esteem in terms of his integrity. We just disagreed on policy, disagreed on procedure, disagreed on how to handle the impeachment. But I didn't think that he was a dishonorable or uh, a disreputable kind of person. You have those kinds of discussions in every White House. It's not always everybody sitting around singing kumbaya. And uh, when you're having discussions at the very highest level, yeah, things can get pretty tense. Um, but my my opinion of him as a person uh, has not changed. And again, I, I absolutely believe the man is going to tell the truth. I just don't know what he's going to say. If Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony conflicts with Pat Cipollone's testimony, and again, they're both under oath, who would you believe? Yeah, it's a really good question. And sort of it depends on on how it conflicts and is it is it directly opposed? For example, if Pat says he never heard a story about the president grabbing the wheel, does that undermine Cassidy when really what she testified was that she heard that story from Tony Ornato? They're not exactly sort of contrasting statements. But if he says, for example, I never said I was worried about getting charged with all crimes imaginable, then that's going to create sort of this this tete-a-tete, this head-to-head sort of differentiation between the testimony. And it'll be up to folks to decide who's telling the truth. But like I said, Pat's a very compelling, credible guy, and I will be paying very close attention to what he says next week. So you left the White House uh, in March of 2020, which was obviously before the election and before the events of January 6th. But in the time that you were there, that you were behind the scenes in the White House, did you ever witness Pat Cipollone warning the president or his other top advisors that they might be about to commit a crime and advise them against taking action? No, the president never asked me to do anything immoral, anything illegal. We could rehash, if you want to, the withholding of the Ukraine funding, which was 100% legal and 100% moral. Uh, I won't go into specific conversations between the president and Pat Cipollone. That's his lawyer, after all. But again, I, I didn't see this. I didn't see... Uh, the story that Cassidy told about the president last week about somebody who throws plates and pulls tablecloths off of tables. I didn't see that. I didn't see anybody who grabs a wheel or, or accosts a Secret Service agent. Did not see that. Understand that things may have been very, very different uh, after the election in 2020 than they were when I was there. Uh, for example, the chief of staff, my previous role, uh, Mark Meadows, seemed to be, from Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, completely detached. Uh, and not engaged in the process. That would have been a big change. So um, I I didn't see um, what uh, everyone saw in January when I was there up until March of 2020. So can you help us understand a little bit about why you are more vocal now than you were in the immediate aftermath of January 6th? And and of course, the committee has been doing its work. I mean, we've gotten a couple new outspoken uh, things from you. There was obviously the tweet after Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony where you called it two stunning hours. Uh, We know that he assaulted his security team, that there may be links to the Proud Boys, et cetera. And then you also recently wrote an op-ed in uh, a a nearby paper to you in the Charlotte Observer arguing that Republicans, Americans out there, should be paying attention to the January 6th hearings. Why'd you decide that you needed to start being more vocal now? Yeah, actually, I'm not being more vocal. It's just more people are paying attention because I'm coming out with things that are against the president. In fairness, for a year, I've been defending him, saying that while I resigned because I didn't think he lived up to the expectations that I had for my president, also didn't take some of the advice I tried to give him in the run up to the the transition of power. I was defending him, saying he didn't do anything that I thought was illegal or impeachable. And no one really cared about that. But since I've been watching the hearings, and I do what chiefs of staff do, we call them like we see him. Our job is to tell the president things he doesn't want to hear. And that's all I've been doing. And the evidence that has been presented, some of it at least, by the commission is very compelling. And I don't think that anybody should be a 
afraid to watch these hearings and make up their own minds as to what's happening. I don't believe anything that Liz Cheney says about the situation. I don't believe anything that Benny Thompson says. They're, they're hopelessly biased. But I do believe Republicans, when they put their hand on the Bible and say, look, this happened and this might constitute a crime. I don't you think You don't believe I'm anything Liz Cheney says when it's clearly she played a key role in convincing Cassidy Hutchinson to testify. You don't think that she's taking a noble role in the Republican Party? I can make my own decisions based upon me watching the evidence. I, I know what I'm seeing political BS from people. I know what I'm seeing showboating. I know what I'm seeing uh, the impact of hiring of the ABC television producer to put on the show. Again, that's that. I think most people could figure that out. I have been moved by the testimony, which is what's supposed to move us. It shouldn't be the statements of politicians on the outset who clearly have an ax to grind against President Trump, regardless what party they're in. But the testimony under oath by Republicans is compelling, and I wish more folks in my own party were watching it. There's more, a lot more. Watch what Mulvaney says about his successor in the job, Mark Meadows, when it comes to January 6th. You won't want to miss it. Part two of our interview with the former Trump acting chief of staff when CNN Tonight returns. More now from my conversation this evening with former President Trump's one-time right-hand man, Mick Mulvaney. He talks about the impact of these January 6th hearings, who you should believe, and how the Republican Party should view Trump and 2024. When you say you wish more folks were watching, I mean, what is your assessment? You, of course, uh, are a politician, uh, were for a long time. What's your assessment of whether Republicans are willing to be moved, especially in some of these key swing states like Georgia and perhaps Wisconsin, where those hearings, these hearings might be getting a little bit more coverage. Yeah, it's not determinative, but I think uh, it was like it wasn't Gallup. But some somebody came out with a poll just in the last 12 hours that asked folks to rate what the most important issues to them are, and it didn't prompt them to give an answer. And no one said January 6th. No one said the January 6th commissions. Things like the economy are still driving ordinary Americans and what they care about. That being said, uh, and by the way, I don't think the hearings are moving that needle one way or the other. Inside Washington, inside the political world, so outside of Washington in politics, it is moving the needle. And what you're seeing, I think, is folks, especially in my party, are looking at Donald Trump as as, as damaged um, and as well, something that might weigh down the party going into the midterms and into 2024, which is why I think you're starting to hear rumblings now about Mike Pence running in 2024 against Donald Trump, Mike Pompeo, Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley. Um, those were discussions that I don't think you would have had six or eight weeks ago before these commission hearings started. Would you vote for Donald Trump in a Republican primary? Uh, in a primary? No. Keep in mind, I, I've got a lot of friends who are running. I'm not going to tell you who I would vote for, but there's a lot of folks who I think would be a be a better president um, than Donald Trump in a Republican primary. That was going to be exactly my question. Do you do you already have someone that you have in mind? Uh, Casey, I, 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 I served in the state legislature with Tim Scott. Ron DeSantis and I played on the congressional baseball team together. Nikki Haley was my governor. Mike Pompeo and I served in the, in the cabinet together. These are all my friends. Mike Pence and I go back 12 years. So no, uh, I don't have a favorite dog in the fight. I just think that it will be healthy for the party uh, to have really good candidates run against Trump in 2024. So let me bring us back uh, to the hearings uh, briefly. We talked about uh, Cipollone, obviously, who is scheduled to testify. The person that we are still waiting on is Mark Meadows, who is, of course, your former colleague uh, in the House of Representatives. Uh, the Freedom Caucus, of course, a place where you two 
uh, interacted regularly. Um, do you trust Mark Meadows to tell the truth? Um, if Mark Meadows put his hand on a Bible and said he was going to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, I would be inclined to believe that. I do not believe at this point he's the most credible out of all the witnesses. You asked me a fair question five minutes ago, which is if Cipollone said X and Cassidy Hutchinson said Y, I'd, I'd want to look at it very, very closely and it'd be a close call. If Cipollone says X and Mark Meadows says Y, I'm absolutely believing Cipollone. I just am. And I think a lot of folks are. Um, Mark seems to uh, have gone through a very dark period. He was apparently, according to Cassidy, detached from the job. I don't know if he was having some sort of uh, event where he could not engage. But I think Mark um, Mark is in a really strange place. Um, and my guess is if, he's if he testifies, um, and he may be compelled to testify because he's under criminal. Uh, he's not under criminal indictment yet, but it's been a criminal referral to the Department of Justice. My guess is we'll see him take the Fifth Amendment uh, more often than not. Do you think Mark Meadows betrayed the country with what we've known now about his actions around January 6th? You know, certainly that case is being made. But let's let's step back for a second and recognize the hearings are not over. No one's had a chance yet to counter Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. There may be five or six or eight witnesses who come out and say, look, she really was lying under oath and I'll be wrong about uh, giving her the benefit of the doubt that I have up to this time. So it's too early to, to draw sort of the conclusions. This process is not over and we need to see it through to the end. Um, that being said, as a former chief of staff, I picked up on things in Cassidy's testimony that really frightened me, and it was the way the West Wing was running. It wasn't running. It was it was anarchy. It was chaos. It was a clown show with folks like Rudy Giuliani and, and Lynn Wood and Peter Navarro in the, in the Oval Office with all the, the reasonable people, the smart people, seemed to be sort of disengaged. And it was Mark, up to the chief of staff, it's me, Mark Meadows, John Kelly, to make sure that the West Wing functions properly. Um, because there are protections in place to make sure things like January 6th don't happen. Uh, and that system fell apart under Mark's watch. And while the president's ultimately responsible for the people he hires, the chief of staff bears a great deal of responsibility when it comes to running that office. All right, finally, uh, before I let you go, um, do you have any regrets about your time in the West Wing? I mean, you did write at one point that you thought that the former president would gracefully accept defeat in the end. No, I'm not big into regrets. Um, by the way, that piece, I've taken a lot of criticism for that piece. You started this uh, this segment by saying that my prognostication about Cipollone showing up was was a winner. That's, that's good for me. I've got some bad predictions in my past. Uh, but keep in mind, that was me with my chief of staff hat on. That was me advising the president. That was me speaking to an audience of one. I hoped that it was true. I really did. Uh, and there was evidence, as I set forth in that piece, that it was true. But I was also trying to speak to the president as his former chief of staff in a way that I knew he communicated, which was through the Washington, through the editorial pages, of some of the big pages. And he didn't take the advice that I gave him in that piece, which is one of the reasons I quit uh, the Daily Riots. He certainly did not. All right. Mick Mulvaney, thanks very much uh, for this conversation this evening. We really appreciate your time, sir. So much to discuss there. A key question will be, who Donald Trump met with leading up to January 6th. And that's going to include some of those who spent time inside the White House residence, away from the cameras and the attention of the West Wing. The one person not named Trump who may know better than anyone joins me next. Clown show. You heard how former president's one-time chief of staff described the administration under Mark Meadows. 
My next guest was in the Trump administration from the very day that Trump was inaugurated right up until January 6th. She worked directly with both the former President Donald Trump and First Lady Melania Trump. Stephanie Grisham, thank you so much for being here with us tonight. Thank you for having me. So let's start there. What do you make of the dysfunction that Mick Mulvaney described under Mark Meadows? Well, I left for that very reason. I left the West Wing because of Mark Meadows. So I think that uh, what Mick had to say was correct. And it does seem that towards the end there, um, perhaps Mark was more disengaged than usual and allowed some uh, pretty bad actors to surround the president. Do you agree with Mick Mulvaney's assessment of who is to be believed in the context of these hearings? He suggested he would believe Pat Cipollone over Mark Meadows if their testifies, testimony conflicts. Do you agree? Yeah, I, you know, I think that uh, Mick was a lot more charitable than I would be with with. Um, <laughs> When it comes to Mark, I would believe my dog over Mark Meadows. So absolutely, I do want to say I agree with with Pat completely or with uh, Mick completely about Pat. He is a man of integrity. Uh, I didn't always agree with Pat also. I think it was the normal lawyers versus the PR person kind of butting heads about what to do. But he is a man of integrity, and I saw him myself constantly uh, shutting down bad ideas and telling the president that things uh, shouldn't go certain ways. Another thing that I saw quite a bit was the president wasn't great to Pat. Um, the president would tell him he was weak and he needed better lawyers, you know, and Pat stood firm and did what was best for the country. So I believe that's what he will do now. Uh, can I ask you also, in the event that there are conflicts between Pat Cipollone's testimony and what we heard from Cassidy Hutchinson and, and both we expect uh, Pat Cipollone to testify under oath. She was under oath. How would you evaluate discrepancies between those things? You know, that'll be hard. It'll depend on so many things. You know, a lot of what Cassidy had to say, which she said, you know, up front was what another person told her. Now, obviously, if it was a conversation between Cassidy and Pat and he believes it differently, it'll depend on, I think, nuances of, you know, will Pat say, I absolutely didn't say that? Then that'll be one thing. But if it's just a discrepancy in a word or two, or perhaps Cassidy thought he was saying it um, in a way that Pat wasn't quite saying it. it, it just depends. And in that White House, there's so many things going on at, at, at so many, you know, in one moment, and there's so many conversations happening. So I, I think we all just have to watch and see. I think that Cassidy was very believable. I did not work with her. I don't know her. Um, but I think we'll have to wait and see. And did you ever personally witness instances where the then White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, informed the president or those around him that they couldn't do something because it was illegal? No, I never saw that. You know, Pat, uh, to his credit, was great at having, I think, those kinds of conversations with the president privately. Um, he often had conversations that it would frustrate me as the press secretary because I needed to be in there so that I could then hopefully tell the press kind of what was going on. But I never saw him say no in terms of you're gonna, this is going to be illegal. But I did see him push back often. And I did see him say, you know, during the first impeachment hearings, that's a great example, uh, Jenna Ellis wanted to come on board um, as legal counsel, and the president was okay with that. And Pat said, "No, I don't want her on the team, and we will step back." So I've seen I've seen those conversations take place. Remarkable. It's, it really underscores. I mean, what you just said really underscores why Pat Cipollone's testimony is so absolutely critical here. Let's turn right. to what you were witnessing uh, in the White House, behind the scenes, around the time of January sixth, and, and the days before. It, you wrote in your book a little bit about meetings that would happen 
in the White House residence after hours. Have you spoken to the committee about those meetings? And what can you tell us about who was in them and how they unfolded? Uh, Yes, I've spoken to the committee extensively about anything that I know about the days leading up to January 6th. But, you know, as as just practice, uh, Mrs. Trump understandably always wanted to know if people were going to be in her home at night. And the president oftentimes didn't tell her. So I, as chief of staff, needed to be notified. So I I was always told by the usher who was going to be in the the residence that evening. Um, And I do know that leading up to January 6th, there were a lot of the lawyers, I like to do that, um, up there speaking, um, that Mark Meadows would usher them into the, to the residence. I don't know what was discussed. Oh, go ahead. Just, can you enumerate who those lawyers are? I mean, I think some of our viewers may know, but just for clarity. I apologize. Yes. Uh, Jenna Ellis, uh, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani. Um, those are the three I can think of at the top of my head. And of course, some of them were present then at a meeting at the Willard Hotel, uh, right before January 6th. That's become uh, of significant interest to the committee. In in your experience and based on your knowledge uh, of this period of time, do you think President Trump uh, knew uh, who was meeting at the Willard Hotel and why? Yes. And the reason I say that is because nobody did anything without President Trump's blessing, period, end of story. Uh, I, as press secretary, any chief of staff that I worked with, which was literally all four of them, you didn't do make a move without first getting his his sign off. Uh, people didn't go behind his back and make major decisions and uh, talk strategy without him knowing. So I, I think that he was well aware. But that's just me knowing just from my own experience. This is just a guess. So you're saying that based on extrapolation on previous behavior, not necessarily because you knew based on experience. Okay. And what about Mark Meadows? Do you know if Mark Meadows knew what was going on at the Willard Hotel? And do you have any insights into uh, the claims that we've heard from the committee that he was interested in attending that meeting? I don't I don't know personally. Uh, again, when Mark Meadows took over as chief of staff, I left the West Wing probably three weeks later. So I was gone and I was very much removed. But again, uh, knowing the way the president worked, knowing the way the West Wing worked. And, you know, this isn't even this is just Mark Meadows as chief of staff would need to know about all of those things that were going on for so many reasons. So knowing how things worked, I can't imagine um, that he wouldn't have been aware. And I can't imagine that the president wouldn't have told him to go there. Do you recall, uh, final question, do you recall ever hearing any conversations or uh, discussions around connections to some of the extremist groups, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, that we're going to see, we're going to see those links explored in the next hearing? Does that ring true to you at all? Do you know anything about it? I don't know anything about it with uh, regard to January 6th. It does ring true to me only uh, that, and I'm not going to get into this, uh, which is terrible, I know, for your show, but um, there were people on the Trump campaign that had connections that I spoke to the January 6th committee about. Um, So it rings true to me. I don't know um, any factual connections that maybe Meadows had or anybody in the West Wing had. Very interesting. Trump campaign officials, potential connections to the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. We will, of course, be on the lookout to see if that comes up in subsequent committee hearings. Stephanie Grisham, thank you very much for your time tonight. Okay, we're going to take what we just heard tonight from Grisham and from Mulvaney, and we're going to bounce it off yet another former Trump world insider, along with two formal federal prosecutors. What do they think this upcoming January 6th hearing might lead to? That's next.
So you just heard Donald Trump's former chief of staff speaking out and his former communications director, who told us who was secretly meeting with Trump in the days before the mob attacked the Capitol. We have so much to break down with our panel. We've got Doug Jones, the former U.S. senator and former U.S. attorney, Elliot Williams, a former federal prosecutor, and Miles Taylor, the former chief of staff to the Homeland Security Secretary during the Trump administration. Uh, Miles, um, you had a pretty strong reaction when we were listening to the Mulvaney interview here together where he said that he, and I'm paraphrasing, saw nothing illegal or immoral in his time in the West Wing. Yes or no? True or not? Let me say a couple things. One, I do think it's important that Mick and people like Mick are starting to speak up. And I think that shows you that Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony is making people scared. It's good that he's out there. However, I would add, there is no one, no one that was in Mick's job during the Trump administration who did not see him do things that were immoral, unethical, or try to do things that were illegal and unconstitutional. I'm telling you, I sat there in rooms when Mick was there when the president wanted to do things that were illegal. Now, did he do them? No. He was often talked out of them, but this was his daily impulse. Do you have examples during your Absolutely. Time? I mean, for instance, I mean, Mick was there for meetings where the president wanted to illegally and unconstitutionally seal the entire board, even though the law said you have to allow asylum seekers to come in. In fact, he would berate people for that. And Stephanie was really right in her interview when she said Pat Cipollone was often the one who got berated by the president because he was the lawyer that had to say no. This happened in Mick's presence. It happened in John Kelly's presence. It happened in Mark Meadows' presence. This was a daily occurrence that Trump, want, Trump wanted to do things that were immoral and unethical. But I think what was interesting about what you saw is we're now entering the stage of this investigation where there's a lot of names coming forward. Mick versus Mark and Cassidy and Pat Cipollone. The finger pointing that's happening now shows you people are getting scared and now people are starting to come forward. You know, something to, and I say this as a former prosecutor, we fixate so much in thinking about what is a crime and what isn't, what you can charge as a crime and what you can't. And much of the conduct in the world that people shouldn't do can't be charged as crimes, and that's okay. A lot of this was disgraceful, immoral conduct for people who were blessed to be able to serve the American public and failed, and failed the country. And that itself is immoral and indecent and wrong. Now, you know, some of it may not be criminal, but I think it was really important that he drew that distinction, noting that this was immoral conduct and shameful for anyone to be engaging in the White House. You know what? What has struck me about Mulvaney and some of the others, and I agree with you, I'm glad they're coming forward. But you know what? I sat through a damn impeachment hearing, okay? And I saw people coming forward then. And people like Mulvaney and others just enabled the president to berate those people and to continue to do things. Uh, Glenn, I'm glad they're coming forward now. I'm happy they're doing it. But every one of those folks enabled Donald Trump. And when you enable somebody like Trump for that long, you're going to end up with a January 6th type situation. And that's what bothers me for the future. But it, I, I, to, to call everybody, call, look, again, I can't say it enough. I'm glad they're coming forward. We see it all the time in, in investigations like this. But if they had come forward and did the things that they needed to do back in the day, we might not would have ever gotten to January 6th. What do you think the motivation is? I mean, you've prosecuted cases. You know how this works with one witness saying something and bringing sure. other witnesses up out of the woodwork. I mean, why does Mick Mulvaney switch now? I think, I think it's a combination of things for people. I think that Cassie Hutchison did embolden people. People are afraid. Look, anybody that spoke out against Donald Trump Trump was going to get slaughtered in the social media. They were going to get bullied. And I think people are seeing this now that they can they can actually speak out and tell the truth. And they are people with character. I think other people are also thinking, 
oh my God, did I do something wrong? I better talk to somebody because I see all of this now. There's a combination of things. We see it all the time in federal investigations where the media comes out and people get, they either get emboldened, they get frightened. This is, this is a a, a very similar pattern. And, um, you know, this is happening on a public scale in a way that criminal trials and investigations don't. Because Congress is Congress, it's a public body. They have political interests too, but they get to be out there in a way that prosecutors uh, wouldn't. So necessarily they see what's going on. They see that it's fine. The world, the sky doesn't fall and you do the right thing when you come forward and but testify. Casey, I, 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 I'm cynical about a lot of this stuff, too. I watch Bill Barr. I, wa- I watch Mick Mulvaney. I questioned uh, them both uh, in hearings, especially Mick Mulvaney and others. Mm-hmm. I think there's also a, uh, there, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a new tour. It's a, it's a, you know, a kind of a self-righteous tour that all these people are going on to try to rebuild an image that, that, that got tarnished incredibly tarnished well, and I, with, with the things from... I have to add Donald to that, Trump. Senator, you can't serve in that administration without coming out with a PhD in cowardice analytics. Absolutely. I mean, I, I can tell you, I witnessed it at every single stage. And in 2020, when I was trying to recruit every single senior official in the Trump administration to go oppose his reelection, the first motivation in saying no was fear. A lot of them were afraid to be intimidated. But another motivation was they didn't want to lose out on money-making prospects in Trump world, especially if he came back one day. One of the things we're seeing now is a different type of fear, fear that they're going to be prosecuted and people are starting to change their tune. And I hate to say it, and I said this to you guys during break, also perversely, some of them saw Cassidy Hutchinson became a hero. And a lot of them left the Trump Absolutely. administration being villainized by the yeah, American public. They could have public. done a little earlier. And now they say, oh, I can go become a hero and yeah. I can get famous I on can, TV. You know, I can redo my image. But, you know, I'd be curious for, uh, for the elected official at the table, is it just politically wise now that maybe folks are seeing... Yeah, is it, that's a good question. Is it changing uh, significantly? Right? Well, I, mean, I don't... I, I still haven't seen that much changing in the, in the Congress of the United States and the Senate. Everybody is still talking behind closed doors. Right. We have seen January 6th now. How many hearings? Seven. We got more coming up. And we have nothing but crickets coming out of the House of Representatives, right. the Republican leadership, and the Senate leadership. So let me ask, I take your point on Congress, but the point that Mulvaney was making about how this might actually break the dam on 2024, mm. because, I mean, it's clear, right, in, in races, in House and Senate races, Trump is still, especially in primaries, kind of the be-all and the end-all. But there is this group of Republicans that are just itching to, they all want to be president, right? And does this, I mean, Miles, do you think that this creates, or sorry, Doug, Senator, and then, not and then Miles. A, not a single one of them have come out and criticized this president that much. Not a single one of them and have come out. And is that a prerequisite, out. do you think? I think they, if they're going to have any credibility, because they were yeah. all enablers, everyone that, that, that Mick named were enablers during the, the time. Not a single one is talking about this hearing if to say it, it's a witch hunt. And, and, yeah, we need to move on. We need, they would love to get Donald Trump in the rearview mirror, as we talked oh, about last night. Oh, all right. Mike Pence was probably one of the biggest stars of, I think, the yeah. first hearing. Yeah. Um, clips of his testimony and so on. And if you notice, he was very careful in the, and measured right. in the tones he uh, took when speaking about the former president. If they want right, a break. Yeah. They want a break. Yeah. Let's get a break. And, and I think the country needs it. I think, the, quite frankly, I'm not a Republican, but I think the Republican Party needs that break. I'm not anymore well. either. And I'm very happy not to be. I left it at the, maybe a little too late. I, I will say to your question, though, Casey, I talked to three different people today who served at high levels of the Trump administration, have not yet come out publicly to ask that question. What will it take? 
Now, some people are being moved by Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, but a number of people said to me today in these conversations that it will be the primary process in 2024 that hopefully is Trump's political death knell. It's going to be ambition countering ambition. And in their view, it's all the ex-Trumpers going to work for the next crop of GOP people, whether it's Pompeo or whether it's Nikki Haley, that will ultimately be able to sink him. Now, I wish they would just come out anyway, but if that's what it takes as the primary process for them to get into the fight, well, by all means, get in the fight and try to take him out in the primaries. But I hope we never have to get to that, although it sounds like the former president is angling to get well, not back a, in. Not a single one of them is going to be protecting democracy if they do that. That's not a single right. one of them. And you, that's, you mean if they, if they run if, without if they criticizing just, If they just, just go to other people, nobody is going to be protecting the democracy as we know it, which needs to be protected. That is one of the most critical things that this country is facing right now. And those folks that are not coming out and not speaking out, they are doing serious damage and to this country. It's not just Trump. It's the underlying Absolutely. causes that led to January 6th. Absolutely. And, and it's cutting that stuff out and attacking that stuff. That's pro- it's, it hasn't gone away. And it's not going anywhere, regardless of what happens with Donald Trump. And it's part of why what's unfolding with faith in our elections, the way those laws are being changed and meddled with, is so incredibly important in the context of this conversation. All right, we've got a lot more to talk about. Stick around, uh, because we have another investigation on efforts to overturn the election that is also heating up tonight. The prosecutor who just subpoenaed Senator Lindsey Graham won't rule out a subpoena for Donald Trump. We'll discuss that next. Could former President Trump be subpoenaed as part of a grand jury investigation into whether he criminally interfered in the 2020 election in Georgia? Fawny Willis, the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, says yes. Take a look. Might we see a subpoena of the former president himself? Uh, Anything is possible. So we're not ruling it out. It is possible to. Absolutely. Anything is possible. That grand jury just subpoenaed a handful of key Trump allies, including his former attorney, Rudy Giuliani, and South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham. Back with me now, Doug Jones, Elliot Williams, and Miles Taylor. Um, so there's a lot to talk about here. Elliot, let's just like talk nuts and bolts here. Yeah. What happens if the Fulton DA does subpoena Donald Trump? Well, you got a legal fight on your hands because just like Lindsey Graham has said he would do, the president, I think, would would move to quash the subpoena saying it's either political or not based in fact or something like that. I mean, if there's anyone that's an expert at, like, dragging out subpoenas uh, and legal processes, uh, it is uh, former president uh, Donald Trump. He's got a PhD in dragging out legal processes, right? Now, look, if he is subpoenaed, it would have gone to a court and a judge anyway, and the judge would have approved the subpoena saying there was a basis for it. But you got a legal fight on your hands. The president gets subpoenaed. And it's not normal practice to subpoena a target yes. of an investigation. I mean, okay. it's not normal practice. You run a real risk of potentially having a grand jury tainted if you put some a target in, in How there. How so? What does that oh. mean? If they, if they know that they're going to take the fifth, which I, and I know that people would think that Donald Trump is incapable yeah. of doing that. But if he had a, a, any decent lawyer, I mean, even a court appointment, I mean, lawyers of any stripe, would tell him, do not testify. Take the fifth. Okay. It is protecting you. Yeah. Well, there can be serious ramifications for a case in which somebody puts a, a target in front of a grand jury just knowing that they're going to take the fifth. Hey, look, you have the right to remain silent. That's right. right. You watch Dragnet. Sure. That's what people think about. That's right. And literally, <laughs> if, they, if they bring you into with a subpoena, 
and, you know, they're asking you to testify, and then if they charge you with a crime, that might throw the whole thing off. Yeah, Senator, you know, to your point, he's yeah. clinically incapable of remaining silent, right? And any prosecutor is going to know that. And, and, and honestly, that's what the, the, the trail that Donald Trump has created, frankly, is what puts him in the most vulnerable position here. I mean, one of the reasons Trump world is panicking right now, they genuinely feel totally besieged not by, just by the January 6th committee, but by this investigation and any number of investigations, is because they know at some point the shoe's going to drop. The penny's going to drop, and something is going to stick. He's not Teflon Don that nothing will stick. Something will stick at some point, and it's one of the reasons why the former president is itching to announce his candidacy in sure. 2024. Yeah. The people around him are, are worried that they're going to get hit, but if he's a candidate for public office... He can say, this investigation's partisan. They're just trying to end my candidacy. That's the talking point he's trying to rush into existence. Now, look, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I mean, we were talking about in the break, um, you know, the risk of trying to prognosticate when charges are coming, you know, and I, it's never a good idea. Prosecutors Absolutely. know this. However, if the president is to be charged, the former president is to be charged, it's probably in Georgia because they're just, and I think, quicker than the federal government because they're right. just more straightforward crimes. It's straight up election right, law. Right, and the evidence yeah. is very clear it's as well. Clearer, the recorded right? It's not this lofty constitutional well, stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, look, everybody's talking about how clear that is. Yeah. L- let me tell you something. I, d- I did a little defense work too. And a good defense lawyer is going to rip that tape to shreds, okay? okay. He's going to rip that tape to shreds. Why? Because you can say, you know, if you're in the heat of something and you've got... And you've, and you've lost a close election for the governor, for president, yeah. whatever. But, and you can say, oh, my God, I just, I just need to find 11,000 votes. Yeah. That can be an innocent conversation. If you're asking someone to redo the count, do it's it again. very generous please. interpretation, it, no, but no, I do no, take no, your point. But, no, but, but, but remember, <laughs> it's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And if there's a different hypothesis that's consistent with innocence, then you don't get a conviction. Yeah, it's it's so, undermined by the fact that he asked for exactly the right amount uh, of votes he would need to win, but it actually muddies the water enough, I think, for a defense attorney to get I, I, the jury's Oh, it's going to be yeah. crazy. So, so, Senator Jones, let me ask you from a political perspective, because I think all of these things are layered together, perhaps less so in Georgia, but definitely in the case of the Department of Justice, Merrick Garland making decisions about what to do. Is there in your view, as someone who understands both the legal system and how this works on the ground in politics, a risk to charging Donald Trump that will potentially elevate him in the context of a 2024 run? Of course there is. I mean, look. And how significant is it? Well, I I, I think significant. I mean, you only go back to um, my old um, uh, nemesis, uh, uh, Judge Roy Moore. Roy Moore (laughs) got elevated because he got sued by the ACLU. And he, he rode that horse as far as he could. Not, not his regular horse. He rode the legal horse <laughs> as far as he could. Sorry. But, but yes, there is a risk. But I will say this. That is not the kind of risk that is going to be a determinative for the Department of Justice and the Attorney General of the United States. They're going to look at the pros and cons. They're going to look at the strength of the evidence. They're going to look at the policy behind it. They're going to understand that when you're trying to indict a former president that has never been done in the history of this country, that you've got to raise the bar. It is going to there. And there's long term ramifications for doing that. And that's what it's going to be. It's not going to be the political risk. I'm at, I right, do so, not believe it will be the political risk at all. So raising that bar, it occurs to me, and I, I actually want to circle back because we haven't talked about what Stephanie Grisham said at the end of her interview with yeah. us, which is that she has testified to the January 6th committee about potential links between the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers to the Trump 
campaign. I mean, Miles Taylor, what do you know, if anything, about that? And is that going to be the center of whatever the Department of Justice does? Well, look, I, I talked to someone the other day who who actually said to me when they would go on advance trips with the president and you get these drivers that drive staff in the cars, that there would be these QAnoners and Proud Boys types who would be brought on as volunteers to drive the staff vans. And, you know, they were worried about it then, and that was years before January 6th. One thing was very clear before I left the Department of Homeland Security, and that was the White House didn't want to talk about domestic terrorism because the people that the law law enforcement community considered domestic terrorists were the people the White House considered supporters. They considered them very active supporters, and they didn't want to launch cases against these people. I mean, the red flags were being aired then. So I think you can draw a line from what happened on January 6th way back into the administration. But but there's a really crucial point here. I mean, for many years... Final word, we're about to wrap up. We've hoped that investigations would save us from Donald Trump, that impeachments would save us from Donald Trump. One thing's very clear. This may ultimately go back to the people. Donald Trump may make it into a primary process, and that's ultimately what the Constitution says, is the people have the final word here, and we may have to be prepared to have the people vote to keep this man from being in public office. And hope that the people have the final word and not some... Uh, partisan election official. And I think that's also what Liz Cheney is going for here. When every time she speaks to the camera, I think that's what I think about in the back of my mind. Doug Jones, Elliot Williams, Miles Taylor. This was a great conversation. We could go all night. Thank you all for watching with us tonight. I will be back tomorrow. Don Lemon tonight with Laura Coates sitting in. Starts right now.